forget the podcast. <laughs> How do we do this? How do we do this? <laughs> I have my kind of comfort 40k models here for me. They're kind of like, <laughs> I'm a little stressed out about this one, so I've got, you know, some Death Watch guys yeah, just hanging out. Yeah, just sitting on the table. Yeah. Making sure we don't do anything wrong. Yeah. Don't mess up, otherwise. <laughs> otherwise. It's exterminatus for you. <laughs> That's the thing. You play one game, two games in our case of Kill Team. Now it's like, should I just build every Kill Team possible? Yeah. Perhaps I should. That's what I do. Yeah, well. All right. Well, uh, here we go. Another week. You have a caffeine headache. I accidentally drank some milk today, and so I'm a little all over the place. But I am actually pretty excited to do this one. Um, but before we do that, I feel like we should acknowledge something that we haven't done in a long time, which is the change of seasons. It's officially spring. Yay. And I feel like... Uh, it's basically summer. It's basically... Base, yeah, oh, it's come been, on. It's it's been, been, oh, God, glorious. that means it's basically October, which no, means no, the no, time's no, going to no, change. No, no, no. <laughs> um, usually accompanied by optimism, spring, I felt myself perhaps have a bit more pessimism now that spring has started. But hey, it's warm. Uh, my seeds can now be sown outside. It's all fun. It's all fun. Yeah. Uh, it feels different. Yeah. I'm going to go go old as far as to say <laughs> things are changing. There has been a change in the weather, <laughs> and things are different. But you know what is doing very well, Jack? Let's hear One it. A crop of broad beans. Really? Yeah, looking, Excellent. Looking very strong. That makes one of us. Yeah. <laughs> one look like dog shit. That's good. I know we, we were worried about yours several episodes, maybe 10 episodes ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. For the listeners that only listen for um, so as to keep up with our continued efforts to grow broad, broad beans for some reason. Um, yeah, yeah, mine are going all right. That's good. Yeah. They've had a... They've had a, had a rough go. Traditional winter of being buffeted by wind and... <laughs> Caught in the occasional frost, but they're really going for it now. Yeah. So. Yeah. I saved my broad bean seeds from last year, and I think that was accompanied by very much a just like, they will be fine no matter what attitude. And they were fine all winter, but I don't know. I should have looked after them a bit more. I should have put fleece over them. I only have about half of them left. But I have about fucking, I think, like 40 pumpkin, or not pumpkins, uh, potatoes that have come up. So <laughs> I'll be able to feed my family during the long winter, I believe. What are you going to do? Yeah. So yeah, potatoes, so. folks. The seasons are changing, the gardens are growing. Yeah. It's so, all good. It's all good. Right? I had a guy come up to my allotment the other day and be like, is this all potatoes? And I was like, it's mainly potatoes. Okay? <laughs> like, Step off, buddy. It's mainly potatoes. Oh, well. We had a discussion a while ago about like growing, not like, obviously we're not going to be able to grow everything we need for food, but growing like sustenance, things that'll like, you know, fill you up. And I feel like mainly what I'm going to have wind up having is just like a lot of chard because it's easy and it'll grow but then mainly like beans potatoes and onions and garlic that's like what i'm gonna have uh-huh. you could live on those if you had to if i had to if i had to I'd be a very gaunt disgusting pinch. man <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh wow yeah i don't think i could live on the produce in my garden at the oh, moment. Yeah. Well, except for like a brief period in june and july when i can eat <laughs> fuck tons of broad beans yeah exactly Patience is what we learned from the garden, Dan. <laughs> My strategy patience. of patience. Strategy of patience. The, the optimistic strategy of patience. Um, I don't know. Maybe we should just get uh, right on into it, Dan. Speaking of patience, um, I don't know if I would say <laughs> this one's been a long time coming, but we've knocked around the idea quite a bit before of talking about endnotes and reading some endnotes. Um, am I correct in saying neither of us had read endnotes before reading this? Uh, I dabbled once upon a time a long time ago, uh, um, and... Don't know how much I'd taken away then, and certainly retained very little. Okay. So I, I, I thought that I had a sort of very vague um, outline as to um, what communization was about. I probably identified as being more of an ultra-leftist mm. in my wayward youth than I <laughs> perhaps do now. Um but no, I'm very pleased that we've gone to do this now. Mm. This text in particular, we looked at uh, EndNotes 1, mm. um, which was released in 2008, 2008 I think, so yeah. quite a long time ago now. Mm. And we've only, we've, we've basically, we've decided that we this time we'll just talk about the introduction and the first essay, mm. and then we'll come back to this uh, text next week and yeah. carry it on. I think th- we decided that may be the best way to break it down, because... Yeah. Um, for anybody who doesn't know, this text is basically like a series of essays replying to one another, and it wasn't quite obvious for us where we, how we would split it into, such that we weren't yeah. leaving one of them as having the final say. <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny. I mean, just to summarize it a bit, and we will get into like the actual debate that everybody knows this from at a later date. But suffice it to say now, we're basically just going to talk about, as you say, that introduction and then the Gilles de Bay essay, which is famous, I guess, in its own right, When Interactions Die. Um, 
Yeah, and I think that was the best way to do it. Because the things that kind of wind up being bannered about between Theory Communist and mainly just Gilles Duvet, the debate is like a little bit esoteric and like he talks about quite a bit more in this first essay than kind of gets discussed in the debate moving forward. So I think it is good to spend quite a bit of time on this. And yeah, I think I've come away from this with more of an understanding of what communization is. I'm still a bit in the uh, in the woods, but um, yeah, I'd always just kind of thought it was a meme. You know what I mean? <laughs> kind of like most ultra left things, like, you know, pancakes and like, you know, the goddamn, like, I don't know. Everything's kind of a meme once you get to a certain point, like on the left scale or whatever. But um, I think I kind of understand what they're doing and I understand the man behind the meme, so to speak. And I dig it. I really dig it. I mean, yeah, surprise, surprise. I like dig something like to the left of the left. But, you know, what are you going to do? Chuck's just read something and now he agrees with it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's the same affliction I mean, it's that no Jack balance. and I both have. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's no dankism. We'll say that. Um, yeah, exactly. It's We read it and then we agree with it. We go, this is the best thing ever. And then we agree with the thing that disagrees with it. And we'll be like, holy shit, this is the best thing ever. So we'll see where we wind up in the theory coming East Yield Debate debate. But as we say, save that for another time yeah yeah i think you're right that the the this initial essay by gilles Devay is very much it's included in this book because it provokes this debate yeah but it does seem to stand apart separately and that is a sort of like historical text in on, of its own self mm. by which i mean that it's it's a text about history kind of thing yeah exactly um, and so i think it makes sense to we'll cover this Hopefully, we will set up the debate a little bit. We will introduce ourselves to some of the terminology a little bit. And if we mess up that terminology so egregiously, well, we'll return to it. Well, it's the listeners' fault for listening. Yeah. If we mess it up, so, you know, what are you going to do? For not telling us. <laughs> yeah, for not telling us. Please don't tell us. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, if we jump right into it, right, like a lot of what is discussed in this introduction is kind of like a dissection of the ultra left and the various ultra left segments. And it's kind of like an introduction to where this whole idea of communization gets its roots, which is, of course, like in the ultra-left. And it's very interesting because three kind of different currents are bought up. One is the, like, classic guys we've talked about on this show before, the, like, Dutch and German left comms, are kings. He also talks about someone we've never talked about on the show before, I don't think, Bordiga, um, and, like, the Italian left comms, and then the Situationist International. I think on my first read through of this, I was like, oh, wow, dudes, like, whoa, yeah, but what if you wrote like a volish work on a wall in Paris? Like, whoa, bro, that's pretty crazy. Um, but then I read through it today when I was supposed to be working again. And I like think I kind of understand how all these pieces have come together to create something relatively nuanced. And I was kind of reminded of like when we read Rosa Luxemburg and I was ready for like the meme of the spontaneity to come up. But then it's like, much like most things, there's like some truth in that, but in reality, it's like something completely different is being said. And so like, that's kind of how I felt about communization here. It's like, and all of these different, you know, infinitely memed upon ultra left tendencies. Um, it was interesting to see them get a fair shake and um, put in their proper historical context, which is something that we almost never do. We just like to be like, look at this person's, you know, what about the councils, you fool. But yeah. And, and I really have come away impressed. Yeah, I think it's a really good rundown. It's a very brief sketch, but a good mm. rundown of like an in, uh, an intellectual development, right? Which is in some ways reckoning with, well, in some ways it's a whole group of sort of like left intellectuals and thinkers from the 60s onwards trying to reckon with the failings of the mm. workers' movement from the early part of the 20th century. And as you say, they're also then drawing upon all of these sort of like, well, these two primarily two main uh, left communist factions from that earlier phase of the workers' movement, as you say, the Bordigists in Italy and the, the Dutch-German councilists who we've had some kind of interaction with. And they're both sort of drawing from but criticising aspects of that. So, yeah, yeah, I guess the, the situationists are quite funny. It's quite easy to look down on them as being sort of like... D class A, sort of, you know, the students. So, I mean, yeah. we've been, we are these people. We've been these people. <laughs> the people you should be giving swirlies to, yeah. and pulling up their underwear and giving them wedgies. But I sort of feel sympathetic to them at the same time because it's kind of, well, one, I sort of recognize that, that desire and that tradition. And also, they do really want to try and find a way into the workers' movement and sure. sort of like find some, some aspects of it which is redeemable, which can be relied upon perhaps to usher in communism, I suppose. Yeah. And yeah, as you say, the, the, this debate and um, 
I guess the origin point for the idea of communization or the theory of communization stems from questions around work yeah. and the abolition of work. Um, and as you say, like it's, um, it was brought into a particular type of consciousness through this incident when Guy Debord like scrawled like <laughs> never work as a piece of graffiti on the wall of the Sorbonne or epic, something. Epic, <laughs> dude. Epic. Epic Debord. But they really are trying to reckon with a sort of serious question and it sort of results in um, this idea of communization. And as a sort of theoretical trajectory, although I still don't really understand what communization <laughs> is, I now sort of understand... Uh, what its intellectual roots are, I suppose, or what kind of theoretical question it is trying to answer. Exactly. I suppose. Because, yeah, the meme of it is always, they just want to skip to communism. They just want to ignore all of the bits that come in the transitionary phase. Don't even think about a transition. And these silly left comes just want to skip straight to communism by communizing. And I guess, like, it, yeah, communization, I guess you could just say, is like an attempt to put as like tautological and as silly as this is going to sound to put like communism in the revolution itself so that when the revolution happens you just have communism right and so it does speak to that idea of like liberating work versus abolishing work and we talked quite a bit uh on our U most recent youtube video dan which everyone can go check out about the politics of anti-work but this is something slightly different it's like how can you actually like emancipate humanity to a point where work and like leisure or whatever, like life are like relatively in indistinguishable where like you feel comfortable with what you do and it's the hunter, fisherman, schmuck thing, right? And it's interesting because like these SI folks kind of like see this temporal like lag in the revolution as being like deadly, right? It's like you have the revolution and then the revolution has to set up these things so that you can then be liberated. Fucking cops come by whenever I talk, I swear to God. Anyway, um, it's like this temp, they're basically trying to like negate that transitionary phase, right? So they're basically like, how can we just kind of abolish work immediately? And so they kind of start to flirt with like the council communists, like my personal heroes, the like Dutch and German people by being like, oh, the council, perhaps that's the form that could like uh, lead us to emancipation immediately, right? Because it's like, well, okay, if you already have this germ of communism in your society, then basically you kind of just like, if everybody just does it, I guess, in the revolution, then you just have your new society. They they move on from that a bit, but I think that that's kind of important to see like where they're coming from. It's like, they're gonna, you know, this gets into like the content and forum stuff, which I won't touch on right now, but like that's kind of what communization is trying to do. It's kind of trying to like avoid all of these different failed revolutions who failed because, hey, maybe the, this is touching on the debate that winds up happening. Maybe these revolutions failed because the counter-revolution was inside of them from the start and they were doomed from the start. So how can we get rid of that? How can we just have the perfect revolution that communizes instantly? Mm -hmm. I found this distinction between the liberation of work versus the abolition of work really interesting. Mm. Um, I'd never really thought about it in those kind of terms before. And it's sort of from that distinction that you then get to develop this critique both of what you've just outlined as being this critique of the idea of a transition to communism rather than communism being the the imminent result of the revolution. Mm. And then also you do get this sort of like implicit critique of the workers' movement. And it's a critique of the workers' movement which, as this book develops, I guess, or as these ideas are developed, results in a theory of why these revolutions failed sort of predicated on the nature of the workers movement and what it was attempting to what it was attempting to achieve i guess mm. so as it's sort of like a legitimate question or worry i guess but it's funny because like so much of what we've been thinking about recently has been hearkening but recently over the most of the time we've been doing this <laughs> podcast it's kind of like a hearkening back to the workers movement of the early 20th century and being mm. like how can we have those yeah. Trade unions, how can we have those parties? How can we have those kind of uh, mediating institutions and organizations? And for this, and as we get into the sort of like Dove essay, this will become very apparent. It's like these mediating institutions that are, that come up for criticism kind of thing, mostly because, well, the, the, in the introduction, this sort of this train of thought ends up in the position whereby all of these representatives of the workers' movement, all of these workers' institutions, its parties and its trade unions, which have been set up to mediate the relationship between the worker and the, the capitalist class, are actually an integral part of the capitalist mode of production. Mm. 
and I guess what you could say, the, 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 the soft version of that argument is, well, they're mediating this relationship between capital and labor rather than abolishing the capital-labor relationship. But then it's actually taken a degree further by some of these left communist thinkers where they say, well, actually, the workers' movement itself has been actually quite central to the development of capitalism by virtue of it sort of like nurturing the worker. They're actually protecting and nurturing the most important aspect of capitalism, which is the labor that goes into creating the commodities kind of thing. Mm. So it's quite a like a quite a stringent uh, staunch critique of everything that we think of as being yeah. the workers movement and everything we might long to reproduce from the early parts of the 20th century. Yeah. Um, and rather they're saying, no, 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 you don't need those institutions because as soon as you have those institutions, uh, as soon as somebody is put in the position of implementing the transition to communism, that's the game is up and we've already lost basically. Mm. To say nothing of the fact that like those institutions are they don't have socialism or communism as their end goal, right? Like, I hate to, like, the social democrats certainly don't, right? Like, that's been proven over and over and over and over again. And, like, whereas the Dutch and German comms, like, they're, like, you know, reject the uh, parliamentarism, reject trade unions. These guys are just, like, kind of, like, reject everything. Like, Dovey is even, like, the council privileges form over content. And so it's like, oh, yeah, whoa, dude. But it's funny because it's, like, so much of, like, ultra-left theory for me is, like, I read it and I'm just, like, Fuck yeah, that's so cool, dude. That rocks. They're right. You you know, hey, you hit the nail on the head, Dove. But then it's also like, we were just talking about this yesterday about like, then how are you supposed to relate to anything that you want to be good, right? Because it's like, and we'll get into Dove's essay where he talks about like the rise of fascism and the role that these bodies played in like helping fascism come about. But like, it really sucks to think that like, a rise in the trade unions and the rise in the trade unions movements like might not be the like awesome great thing that we think and like you know obviously like Corbynism or whatever like we've talked about that before social democracy but like what do you, then what are you supposed to do you know what I mean I guess that's the ever-present question just I guess just make it happen dude or whatever but like yeah it makes it really difficult to like engage with your current state without just being a like doomer you know what i mean because it's like i hey you know i'm part of a union i work with my union that's like i'd like to see my union succeed but it's like damn what role is my union actually playing you know what i mean yeah it sucks yeah. i mean we'll, we'll come on to this as we go further and further into this book and well next time we talk about it i guess and probably not in this episode but fundamentally it does come down to like what what do we expect the role of the proletariat to be mm -mm. in the process of uh, transforming the world in which we live and ushering in like um, uh, the good the, mode, the, the, the good mode. <laughs> <laughs> and there the, there is an extent to which in this it's like um, the proletariat will conduct this magical deed you know which in some ways it's hard to be we can what we've already identified that you can't really be a Marxist without having sure. some sense that like the working class will liberate itself and it's it's about the the working class's position within capitalism which uh, will allow it to do this sort of world liberating task kind mm -hmm. of thing but this sort of strips away so much that it sort of just like boils down to it feels a bit like magic in some ways yeah. and i guess maybe it comes from the what history people have actually experienced right if i had have experienced may 68 or mm. like 69 in italy kind of thing if I'd have seen some of these rebellions of the working class that I could then attribute to being something that I might call communization, then maybe I would feel a more instant connection to it. And maybe because we sort of stand or sit in a period of history where we just feel like we have to scrape together some yeah. meager organization, just start the nascent process of building something. Yeah. It's both, I suppose, disheartening and disempowering to be like, actually, you can't do that and really you just need to wait for the insurrection to come. At the same time, I'm sure there are some people for whom it's tremendously empowering to sort of like have that faith in mm. uh, the proletariat's insurrectionary possibility and yeah. we'll just sort of wait for that to happen kind of thing. Yeah. I don't know whether I'm horrendously mischaracterizing communization here. Well, they probably uh, do the same. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right because it's like we live in a time where the fucking unions and social democrats can't even get along. You know what I mean? So it's like, God damn, what are you supposed to do then? Mm -hmm. But suffice it to say, like business cycles exist, right? And like, 
whether or not we want to say that like the upswing in unionize, unionization and like labor pushes in recent the past year or something like it's specifically in America has had to do with like maybe it had something to do with COVID and like you know like the like reserve or industrial army of the proletariat or whatever like it's not so much magic as like they kind of make it seem like magic sometimes these like radical upsurges of the magical proletariat but it's like well these things are connected to like business cycles right and connected to capital itself obviously but um and yeah I suppose we can tie into the the video we made recently talking about Tang, Tang Ping. Tang Ping. Because the reason why that seems so appealing and so w why that could be read in communization terms, right, is it's sort of like people choosing to not work, people wanting to like free themselves from work mm -hmm. rather than being, because in this essay, in the introduction, they bring up this distinction between people no longer choosing liberation from work. People don't want to be freer at work. They want to be freed from work entirely yeah. kind of thing as this sort of like uh, sociological process that is supposed to be taking place kind of thing. And maybe you can see aspects of that yeah. in all of these sort of like, uh, uh, most people's attitude toward work is nowadays one, which is like, this is pointless. Not yeah. I see the fundamental. I don't. People don't extract their meaning from their work in a way that maybe they once yeah. did, kind of thing. Yeah, or their power definitely. Yeah. Well, fucking, I don't know where anybody <laughs> built their power from these days. But you're right, and I think that was a really important thing that like the Situationist International like really tried to like build upon, and then definitely like um, Dovey and these guys is like trying to divide up labor struggles and the struggle for socialism into like the old workers movement where, you know, you got the barricades and you joined your council and, you know, you rallied everybody at your dang factory and you went on and you shot the Kaiser or whatever. But like versus now where it's like people just don't want to fucking work. Like they like this was in response to like late 60s, early 70s in France specifically where like the people didn't form the councils when they had their revolution in France. It was just like that's just fucking not good at work. And it's interesting because they try to paint that as something positive, right? As like this negative thing where people are like not wanting to go to work is like, it's actually good for the socialist movement. And let me tell you why. And it's good because this is the real socialist movement. And part of me like really understands that and really kind of like vibes with it because it's like, to a certain extent, it's like, yeah, I guess you don't actually want people to... Like, what what the Situationist International is trying to say is that, like, communism is a complete transformation of life, and it isn't just an argument over which class manages, you know, capital or whatever. Like, it is a complete reworking of everything. And I'm fully on board with that. But, like, part of me is, like, that's cool because I've always seen this, like, labor movements in recent eras as being, like, a loss of something where it's like, damn, as you were saying, like, if only we could get back to, like, you know, like, uh, the Kautskyism. If only we could get back to, like, the way things used to be. We have to get back strong unions. We have to get back strong social democracy. But they're saying, like, good, let it die. That's actually a good thing, in fact, because now we're seeing this real movement, which is people who are just like, I would like to abolish work entirely. And, like, that's cool and everything, but it's also, like, it feels very much like a negative project to me because it's kind of... I don't know. I feel like it's painting a little bit of like a good face on something that is like really depressing, actually, because it's like I would like to draw like meaning from my work. You know what I mean? I would also like to, you know, do the full communism and skip to that point and just be like, whatever, it's all the same thing, dude. But like, I don't know. I feel like a, a, a revolutionary project perhaps needs to be a bit more positive because like they're trying to put a positive face on something that is, I think, inarguably negative, which is people just being fed up. And so I don't know. Part of it makes me feel good because it's been something I've been depressed about for a long time. And it's like, hey, here's an explanation that can make me feel good. But also, like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I buy it. It does feel very much like they are seeing what already exists in the world and say, yeah. making that necessary, you know? Like, That's the new workers yeah. movement. There it is. <laughs> it's actually good yeah. that the workers movement's completely collapsed. It's so French. <laughs> um, I mean, that said, they, uh, there's a lot of content to these essays and uh, ideas will be worked out more than how we've represented them. <laughs> One would hope. <laughs> yeah. 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 We'll see. I mean, just that general idea, I think of like the old workers movement and the new workers mm. movement. It's like you, as you say, you are just kind of looking 2. at what's in front of you. <laughs> yeah. Workers 2.0. That's the machines, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's the replicants. That's the Butlerian jihad. Mm -hmm. Um, all right, so should we move on maybe to talk about the Dovey essay itself? Suffice it to say, we figured out what communization is. It's just yeah, yeah, doing yeah. the thing. I, I guess it is, it's form and content, right? It's like, 
instead of having a new form of the revolution, the revolution itself needs to completely change and needs to have the seed of communism in it from day one, whether that's councils or whatever. Like, if it doesn't have that, it's going to fail is what they're saying, basically. Yeah. I do like the idea of, like, the the revolution being, like, an unfolding process. Mm. There's a quote at, at some point in this, it might be in the Devay, actually, where he's like, it might be at the very end of the Devay, where he's like, Com- or maybe at the end of the introduction, God knows. <laughs> it was like, communism isn't like an idea or a program. It's like an unfolding process kind of thing, mm. which I, yeah, which I sympathize with. Mm. So that aspect of communization, I am, um, I'm drawn to. I, Any, I, I feel like it. anybody could say it. that though. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like Lenin could have said I mean, that. Yeah, why not? It's yeah, a process. Yeah. Stalin's like, it's a process, guys. It's what our forefathers fucking, I don't know, Bordiga said. <laughs> um, all right. So this essay the actual essay, the first essay in Endnotes, When Insurrections Die by Gilles DeVay, it's really good. And it's funny because I didn't know what the debate in this was going to be. And so I kind of read this as just very much like history of how fascism rose and about how the workers' movements were defeated in Europe between like 1917 and the beginning of World War II. And I was like, hmm, I buy it. <laughs> and then I started reading the Theory of Communists and I was like, oh, fuck, I, I missed everything. <laughs> Yeah, this is what I was saying about this essay being a history, right? Like, yeah. you can read this essay just as like a historical account of these events, and there's a lot in this which everybody would agree with, kind of thing. Sure. But yeah, it's a, it's yeah, it's compelling, right? So it's a it's a sort of as you say, like a history of the failures of the workers' movement, primarily in Italy and Germany and Spain, and how in their various ways they ended up leading to fascist governments, and he and he, he constructs a critique of the politics of anti-fascism yeah and which he sort of like particularly in the spanish case but in all three of these cases he sort of like he criticizes the workers movement for adopting a politics of anti-fascism which is at that point kind of like resigning any sort of revolutionary initiative it's the end of the revolution um and it's capitulating to to liberals and um and for the representatives of the capitalist regime, mm. I suppose, uh, in a united front against fascism, which mm. he sort of presents the counter the the idea of fascism being counterposed to democracy liberal as being liberal yeah. democracy as being like a false binary, really, mm. and they're both two sides of the same kind of. Yeah. state form i suppose exactly. the capitalist state form. yeah again it's form over content it's like the content of capitalism hasn't changed it's like you could probably apply the same idea to like as i'm sure a million fucking people have done like a critique of postmodernism it's like the content is still the same great there's a different form it's still the same so like what are you going to do fight for a different uh form yeah okay he, he is he doesn't go full like moron and like he does say like okay you, obviously you would rather live in like finland today than like nazi germany but he's saying that like Perhaps it is the anti-fascist struggle that helped, was one of the main things that helped, as you say, uh, bring about fascism itself. And this comes down to like a general idea about fascism, which I don't think is a very controversial one. It's just that like fascism came about because it was really the only thing that could like forcibly, you know, square peg, round hole, force the contradictions of capitalism at that moment together. And it came out as the strongman and was just like, hey, bourgeoisie, you know, there's the famous Mussolini quote where he says, we want to become the state. And everyone, you know, takes that quote to be like, oh, spooky, fascists want to become the state. But he was basically, that was just him directly telling the bourgeoisie, hey guys, we want to be the state, okay? And we'll we'll be the state and we'll make everything run smoothly. Don't worry about it. We'll do all the things you are incapable of doing. If you exactly. just step aside for a little while, yeah. we'll sort it. <laughs> exactly. And it's funny because it's like, you know, I don't know, in famed left history, the devil's chessboard, you very much get a, like, cloak and dagger, like, ooh, fascism was big business doing sneaky things that would never be done in our famed American liberal democracy. But it's like, this is a bit more nuanced because it's like, it kind of doesn't really matter how much the, like, bourgeoisie either held its nose or was, like, in fairness, actively repelled by people like Mussolini or Hitler. But at the end of the day, they saw where things were going and were like, okay, Mussolini's marching on Rome, we'd much rather have him than these goddamn pinkos. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So There's a really interesting portion of this essay when he's talking about Italy and he's talking about Mussolini in particular. And he basically says that whereas the bourgeoisie spent all their time denying the contradictions of capitalism, mm. the fascists come around and be like, yeah. no, those contradictions are real and they definitely exist. Mm. So they, they call them out into the open, but then they direct all of their energy all of that frustration, all of that 
anger in the masses into into war, into nationalism, mm. into racism, into basically just into different cleavages than the one mm. that socialists and communists would want to draw out, which is the cleavage between yeah. uh, the working class and the bourgeoisie. But like, yeah. it's sort of like there is all of all of this energy boiling over. Okay, we're going to have to harness it, and it and it um, it's quite interesting how he describes fascism as being as sort of adopting all of the strategies of. The mass workers movement yeah. even in, in like adopting some of their aesthetics but also some of their terminology mm. but sort of directing it in this other course you know mm. into this sort of like ultra nationalist rather than internationalist yeah. variant of, this, of a similar form I suppose. yeah that that's all really fascinating and i found that really compelling and really made me understand i think the way things are today a lot more clearly because like you're right. Like even the word fascism, I think he says like fasci was originally like working class dudes just kind of hanging out. That's not what it was, but it was something along those lines. <laughs> so they took dudes. that word. So it's just dudes being dudes. Took that word and made it into something different. And it's like Mussolini, even in Italy, was like unions can stick around. And indeed, we will support the unions. But it's like, hey, unions don't ever try and do anything against the state. And that more or less makes the trade union bureaucracy happy because they're like, we can still be trade union bureaucrats. It makes the bourgeoisie happy because they kind of have to go okay, we'll hold our nose and you can have your unions, but don't let them really fuck with us too much. And Mussolini made sure that didn't happen. And like similar things happened in uh, multiple other fascist states. But I really found that that like adoption of a lot of working class or whatever ideals and mixing it with like this disillusioned middle class, really, really compelling and really fascinating. And yeah, it's, it's just a really like easy to understand like, oh, I think that's what fascism is. And it really makes you be like, and today, like you see why in the post-war period that like you see a lot of liberals being like, Trump is the fascist or like Bush is the fascist or this per this person on the right wing is the fascist. And they point to some things where you kind of go, okay, that is kind of fascisty. You know what I mean? Like banning Muslims from entering the United States is a little fascist. No one's going to say that it's not. But like what I suppose the post-war like bourgeoisie was able to do was to like pick little things from fascism where they were like, hey, this works, but then also like do things a little bit differently. So it wasn't just like outward fascism, right? Like, okay, for a couple of decades, you can have your welfare state or whatever, but like also labor unions don't mess with us. You know what I mean? It's really, yeah, it's really fascinating. Yeah, it's a really interesting continuity that he draws, which you've just highlighted there. And it's basically because he's, he's, he's suggesting that the main task of the state is to sort of like create this unity between like politics and economics right mm -hmm. and as we know it kind of like is the executor of the interest of the bourgeoisie you know it sort of like holds together the situation whereby capitalism is able to operate successfully and freely i suppose and the situation in europe post-world war one was basically just like the democratic states that emerged in these countries basically couldn't hold it together in terms of they couldn't secure this synthesis between politics and economics in a way that would allow capitalism to function properly and normally and you had all of these sort of insurgent workers movements that just like had far too much power and, and he also makes an interesting point that like under other cir circumstances and situations he sort of counterposes the situation in the 30s and the 20s to uh, Thatcherism in the 80s yeah. and he sort of makes the suggestion that like under democratic conditions, under conditions whereby the bourgeoisie is united, where the the capitalist state is functioning well or functioning in a way where democracy is able to survive, there is a strategy for crushing the workers' movement, the one that Thatcher undertook. But mm. all of those things that Thatcher was able to do in the 80s, leaders of bourgeois states in the 20s and 30s were just completely incapable of doing. And one of the interesting things he points out as being important in this scenario is the fact that the bourgeoisie in itself was quite um, divided mm. at this time and so it couldn't even really unite into um, something that was a, a sort of state which form which was able to it's so pathetic yeah <laughs> it's so pathetic um so yeah they just have to call in the in the strong men yeah but yeah it's interesting that you you point out that there's this, there's this continuity he draws right which is like fascism leads like democracy leads into fascism, but then fascism leads back into democracy. The fascism of the 30s failed in a lot mm. of ways. It achieved certain certain aims, but obviously it resulted in a catastrophic global war, you know? Mm. It wasn't, it's not like the ideal scenario. <laughs> and, and as you say, he makes this point that like the democracies that emerge after 45 are able to sort of like, obviously they're now in a position where this synthesis 
is able to hold and they're able to have democratic states rather than having to have fascist ones, but it's still a state mm. and it's still achieving the same aim, which is setting the conditions for political functioning of capitalism. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And it's it's really interesting. We should get back to what you were saying too about like the anti-fascist politics, right? And this is something that I have a bit of a hard time with because it's like, it is understandable when you look at the history and the way that Dovey portrays it and presents it that like anti-fascist struggles in allying with liberal democracy, a failing liberal democracy, we should say, more or less dug their own graves by making so that the only alternative was just going to be fascism, right? And it's interesting because like this is fairly typical left commie. It's like you need to be fully, no, the only thing we want is communism. We only want socialism. We're not willing to make any kind of like, you know, uh, although I guess we see this with other forms of thought. It isn't necessarily just a left com thing, but like they only really want to do the revolution. And this is content versus form. And it's funny because I was doing thinking about like, well, what could these groups have done? What could like the CNT or something like that in Spain have done that wasn't allying with fascism? Because it's like, how the hell are you going to convince people don't join an anti-fascist front, join the only communism or nothing else front, right? Because it's like, that's a pretty hard sell. And I think perhaps our friends in EndNotes would say that it might have been a bit too light at that point. This is something like the seeds for this need to be planted much before you're just about to have fascism, right? And so, like, maybe that's kind of an answer to, like, what the left comes this far left thing that we should be doing right now. Planting some sort of seeds, and however that's, like, hey, maybe councils are better than unions. Hey, maybe this is what you should be doing instead of this. Maybe we should only be arguing for socialism and not arguing about, like, Jeremy Corbyn versus Keir Starmer or something like that, you know what I mean? Like, I suppose, yeah, I don't know. I just got the feeling that, like, once you get to the stage where it's either anti-fascism or fascism, it's a bit too late because it's like, first of all, it's going to be impossible to convince people not to join an anti-fascist front because you probably should. You should probably be doing everything in your power to stop fascism. But at the same time, like, it's kind of doomed to fail through no fault of our own, through no fault of the working classes. It's just, it's going to come down to basically like who can correct these contradictions in capitalism. And if you get into that game, we're not trying to correct contradictions in capitalism. We're trying to move past capitalism, right? So... It's hard. I don't know. It's a hard sell, is I guess mm. what I'm thinking. He makes uh, an interesting theoretical point when he says that democracy isn't something that the capitalist state either chooses or, or doesn't mm. choose. And likewise with yeah. dictatorship. They don't choose or not choose dictatorship. And it's not through the pleading of well-meaning liberals and mm. good socialists and even like militant communists. It's not through their pleading that the state decides to remain democratic rather than give itself over to fascism. He says that like dictatorship is just a tendency within the overall capitalist state form and it will just emerge at the point when it is required. Obviously, people make choices that allow it to come about. People will hand over power to the fascists, you know, but mm. it's not down to somebody's malign decision or it's not down to not allying strongly enough with the liberals that they choose dictatorship yeah um, this is materialism right? yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 it's like it's not just the bad one liberal guy who like Mussolini marched on Rome and is like I will change the course of history and allow you to do fascism in Italy right oh yeah all other conditions being equal you know? <laughs> yeah exactly yeah <laughs> things are looking pretty good in Italy these days but you know what we'll Oopsie try fascism doopsie. Yeah. we let the, the sort of like <laughs> The sympathizer to fascism <laughs> in the position of power and oh dear, oh, there we go again. It's very surreal. I went to Rome and it was only for like three days and I was like fully jazzed on the Roman history and it was insane going from like one corner, here's like, you know, a 2000 year old Roman ruin that's like in excellent condition, walk around the corner and then there's like this massive marble monument for like when they unified the country. And then it's like, and then here's the balcony that Mussolini spoke from. It's like, oh boy, wow. A lot of, geez, history, huh? That's pretty crazy. Also very funny that most people in Rome can like point that out as yeah. a thing and be like, there it is. I was like, okay, that's, okay, cool. And not cool, but like, there it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a balcony. It's a balcony, folks. We love a good balcony over a nice plaza. I'm going to read two quotes of me, Dan, real quick. Please. Um, just to kind of speak a bit about like when is it too late when is it not too late to act this first one i posted on twitter because i liked it so much dan he says this was their fatal error the question is not who has the guns but rather what do the people with the guns do Ten thousand or a hundred thousand proletarians armed to the teeth are nothing if they place their trust in anything other 
than their own power to change the world. And he's speaking kind of about Spain here, right? Because it's like, there were a lot of successful revolutions, a lot of successful rebellions, kind of like regionally around the country of varying degrees of success. But most of the time, they these revolutionary bodies wound up either allying with the state or just keeping the state intact. And so the end goal was always the same thing. Content kind of over form, or form over content or whatever, like you keep the state, you don't smash the state or whatever, the state's going to still be there. It's like a tautology, right? It's like, yeah, that's just the case. And then he comes out and he talks about um, civil war and he quotes Trotsky here. He says, civil war is the supreme expression of the class struggle, Trotsky wrote in Their Morals and Ours. And then this is a little snarky. He says, quite, as long as one adds that the wars of the roses to the Irish or Lebanese convulsions of our own time, civil war is also, and indeed most often, a form of an impossible or failed social struggle. So that I think speaks to like, they would probably say, and this is, I don't know, this is again where it's its brutal because it's like once you're fighting a civil war in like these contexts where you're kind of relying on the state or whatever, things are being dragged out and you've kind of already failed. So communization, it almost seems like the lazy academic way to be like, it, the germ was in there from the start. They failed from the beginning. And part of me gets it, but it's also like, again, you can't convince working class people to not fight against fascism. You can't convince them to not join a civil war, right? So it's like, I don't know. I was I was thinking about like, you know, the recent union surges in the United States surges, right? But like if the end goal of those is to just have a stronger mediator between you know, the government and capital and uh the working class, then perhaps yeah, not something that is as exciting as we all think. So perhaps the germs need to be planted now while there's still time that like, hey, unionizing Amazon is cool and everything and like huge respect for doing that. That's like a completely mammoth undertaking, but also like, Hey, maybe let's not be mediators. We can do this all ourselves. And it's interesting because like at the universities, when they had their strikes, there was like, you know, the whispers of like, Hey, we just want our good pensions. We just want like a good mediator, the union to be a good mediator. And then the like student, kind of like democratize things, which were like, actually, we can just run this whole thing ourselves. And it's like, it kind of was just like a funny student thing, but it's also like, I mean, they're right, right? Like, they are right. <laughs> like, everybody can just run things themselves. So if, if the if the councilists mistake the council form for mm. being the content of socialism or communism, there's also a danger in the contemporary world of mistaking like the union form for yeah, being exactly. like the content of socialism. Yeah. All we need to do is have unions mm. and then we will have socialism. Kind well, of you, you hear liberals say that and they're not even talking about socialism. You'll hear them be like, like progressive liberals, maybe not even progressive liberals, some just like center lips will be like, okay, fine, things will be better if there were just stronger unions in the United States. And it's like, wait a minute, am I agreeing with him? Because something's wrong if I'm agreeing with him, you know, so. Yeah, but that's that's the kind of like, the the role of the mediator between capital and labor. Exactly, actually yeah. like yeah. securing yeah. the continuity of capitalism. Right? So they're just, yeah, they're correct. Yeah. Wow, okay, yeah, good for them. We they know, probably they're have, they know their probably, place. Yeah, yeah, under the right economic circumstances, we could do without this disquiet between capital and labor and actually, mm. I don't know. Yeah, have a well-functioning bourgeois society. It's like the promise of bourgeois society that can never actually be fulfilled. Everybody can be equal if there were just enough unions. It's like, yeah, right, okay, great. Anyway, I do technically kind of work for unions, so unions are good. <laughs> um, yeah, I wanted to come back to the case study on Spain in this, really. Mm. There's definitely a tendency on the left to be like, to hear somebody call what happened in Spain in, between 36 and 39, the Spanish Civil War, and to come back mm. and be like, no, 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 yeah. the Spanish Revolution kind of thing. And he's very much like, there's a, there's a slightly snarky bit when he's like, no, it's not a revolution, it sort of degenerated very rapidly into a civil war. And that distinction he makes between revolution and the civil war, I found quite interesting. Mm. And it's it's the strongest, sort of the strongest case, as I read the book, it's the strongest case for the role he's trying to portray for the working class and the case for where communization could have happened and it didn't, I suppose, whatever communization mm. yeah. in his language really means. And it's this point in 1936 when, as he describes it, the sort of democratic government of the republic was kind of ready to hand its hand power over to the fascists. The fascists were coming and they were ready to hand power over. And the way he portrays it, it was the sort of like spontaneous action of the workers that actually 
prevents a sort of like immediate fascist takeover. It's only the action and the choice of the workers that is that sort of institutes the civil war at all. And it's sort of this instant that he describes as being a revolutionary one. And he says that the workers aren't being anti-fascist in this in this instant. They're being like revolutionary. They're rejecting both versions of mm. the state. And then he says it's only when that revolutionary impulse degenerates into the fighting of a civil war. It's only when all of the sort of radical organizations in Spain, whether it's the, the PUM or the CNT or whoever, ally themselves with other more liberal and centrist and socialist organizations in this sort of like and general anti-fascist front. It's at that point that the whole struggle is lost, yeah. really. As soon as you start to organize the working class into under a sort of umbrella organization, which is a strict military hierarchy rather than being one which is governed by their own sort of spontaneous um, militancy. That that sort of like revolutionary impulse is going to ebb. The desire to fight the conflict at all is going to ebb. And eventually it's just going to end up in this sort of loss to yeah. fascism. Um, yeah, to capital. Yeah, Because yeah, yeah. whether it's a loss to the liberal democracies or a loss to fascism, it's a loss to capital, right? Mm -hmm. I, I did, speaking of snark in the Spanish revolutions, but I did really like when he was discussing the CNT, which is a self, currently I believe still is, could be wrong about that, look it up on Wikipedia, a self-described anarchist union, right? And he's pretty funny because he's just kind of like stops for a moment and he's like, first of all, there's no such thing as an anti-union union. An anarchist union is a union. He's like, great, if it's run by anarchists, that's better than normal. But it's, he basically sends content, no, form transcend. Form drives everything, basically, is what he's saying in this stage, because he's basically like, the form is going to do what the form is going to do, right? It's yeah. like the union is going to continue to be a union. It's going to continue to be a mediator between capital, whether or not it has a, you know, a black flag for anarchists or whatever. It doesn't really matter. So the struggle was lost immediately with the CNT, it would seem. But. Yeah, I mean, coming back to your former point before about, like, laying the groundwork for this kind of stuff, like... As soon as these ostensibly like radical left organizations start to behave like these mediating organizations, mm -hmm. as soon as they start to present themselves as being organizations which are going to mediate this relationship, which are willing to come to some kind of detente with the capitalist state. And also coming back to the sort of like description that we got in the introduction to this book by Endnotes, like as soon as they're willing to present themselves as being the organizations which are going to guide the transition. He says that that sort of like all oh, those organizations have failed at that point. They're lost yeah. at that point. So in terms of like building the groundwork before these revolutionary moments, it's a question we've come back to time and time again. It's like, how do you ensure the revolutionary impulses of any political organization, a trade union, a political party remain like, quote unquote, like mm. pure, yeah. I suppose. <laughs> like, how do you ensure that uh, your communist party is going to uh, not degenerate into some some form of reformism, isn't going to capitulate to nationalism, isn't going to accept a role in governing capitalism, and so, but rather maintain its like revolutionary credentials. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's funny because we got an answer to that in a bit more of an orthodox reading that we did of the um, McNair, right? Like he basically says you need to have extreme democracy, but you also like need to let in everybody in the community, but also like you can't let in people who are going to be like, but what about if we just like did the parliamentary entryism thing? You know, it's like you need to have these these stated goals within your organization, these mission goals, which are, you know, socialism and nothing else. Like you don't want to capitulate to anything, otherwise you're just capitulating to capital. And it's interesting when he says, I didn't mean form was driving everything else, I meant function was driving everything else. And you get kind of like a cybernetics-y kind of read from that, because it's like, if you're able to set up an organization, and I know that this would be privileging form or whatever, but it's like, if you're able to set up an organization along the lines of like what Stafford Beer wanted to do, then like, yeah, perhaps you would be able to have an organization that is able to like have a mission statement, keep to it, while also allowing for autonomy and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it is a bit of a question of form. Like, I know they kind of like shit all over anything that is just like, you're privileging the form, but like, hey, but what if there was a really good form? Mm. You know what I mean? So I think it's a cybernetic truism to say that like systems are what they do. Right? Yeah. Like, yeah, it's exactly. Like the, yeah. It's the, it's the, is the CNT a radical anarchist trade union or is it, is a, trade it a trade union like any other? <laughs> yeah.
how does it actually operate? Mm. Function of a system Function. is what it does. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so, yeah, recognize that because, like, yeah, it's funny, again, though, this is what it comes down to, like, when you're actually talking about organizing. It's hard because it's like, yeah, your union helps you. And your union is good for you. If there's broken central heating, your union will help. There's, you know, like you're about to be fired, your union will help. Unions are good things, but it's also like, yeah, there needs to be something else. Some other form that has a completely different content that people can go to. Maybe it'll spontaneously just show up. I mean, that's the, the question comes back to, is the function of that kind of organization in the sort of best case scenario, in the communist strategy um, scenario, I suppose, is the best case scenario for the, your trade union is that it actually builds working class consciousness, right? Mm. You recognize your collective power because you're able to do collective bargaining and then you go on to be like, what can what else can we do with that power, you know? Yeah. Or is the narrative one that we should adopt from like what the council communists would say? It's like, there is no buildup. It's only the sort of spontaneous impulse mm -hmm. of the workers which is going to institute the revolution. Mm. And there's no amount of like, political preamble to that which yeah. um, can create the, the that scenario i guess exactly well and yeah and to say what you're like to say that okay now we have the power of this union or whatever what else can we do with it implies the like a certain kind of dynamism that doesn't exist in these organizations i think because it's like it looks past perhaps like some sort of bureaucratic ossification in a trade union where it's like wait a minute the system just wants to stay doing what it's doing and people are going to be like i'm actually perfectly happy just being a like you know union schmuck or whatever so that's why you kind of have to, I suppose, have a bit more of like an understanding of systems theory because it's like you can't just hope that one day when you get all of the power, and this kind of reminds me of the Hillary Putnam, it's like once you put all of the power in a box and you'll have enough power and then you'll have the totality of everything to do whatever you want. It's like, well, if the content of that system doesn't actually speak to the mission goal, which is moving completely past capitalism completely, then it's not going to. Function of a system is what it does. What are you going to do? Uh, I would like to comment, though. Can we talk a bit about the labor coupon stuff in this? Yeah. He has a bit of a shot at labor coupons. And just to give him a fair shake, I'm just going to read it. It's one paragraph. And he's talking about the Spanish proletariat here, and he's talking about how they had some kooky ideas about labor vouchers or whatever. And he says, One of the main weaknesses was the attitude towards money. The disappearance of money is meaningful only if it entails more than the replacement of the instrument for measuring value with another one, such as labor coupons. Like most radical groups, whether they're called Marxist or anarchist, the Spanish proletariats did not see money as the expression or abstraction of real relationship, but as a tool for measurement and accounting device, and they reduced socialism to a different management of the same categories and fundamental components of capitalism. So he kind of tries to make the content and form distinction again here by saying that like labor vouchers it's just the same form of money, man. And he's right to a certain extent because, like, yes, money is a tool of measuring value. And, yes, labor coupons are also a tool of measuring value. But I kind of feel like I get what he's saying, but I feel like he's missing the point of his own argument, which is, like, yeah, but also, like, the content of these is radically different because I feel like he's kind of just throwing away commodity fetishism entirely as, like, a concept that doesn't really fucking matter at all because it's, like... Removing commodity fetishes, like, if you were to explain Marxist economics to someone in the simplest way possible, it would probably be something like society allocates all of its total labor time to individual products, but that's completely obscured by commodity fetishism. And if you're able to get rid of commodity fetishism, oh my god, it's the, I'm not going to say that, like, that's the only thing you need to do, but, like, wow, the world's kind of your oyster at that point, because it's like, hey, now we can actually produce for use now. Imagine doing that and not for exchange. And so, like, what he's saying is you need to have more stuff that goes along with it, which is, of course, true. You need to completely rethink the way that, like, the state or whatever would work. You need to rethink the way that, like, firms organize with each other and communicate, et cetera, et cetera. But, like, I don't know. Commodity fetishism is, like, the biggest thing, man. Like, I don't know. I feel like there is, I, that is a content shift, I think, if you were to do it the right way, <laughs> whatever that is. Yeah. yeah, I definitely agree. And I think I, you and I were both equally taken aback by <laughs> sort of the various inclusions of what, whether it's, like, money tokens, like mm -hmm. labor accounting kind of thing. He does make a several references. And I understand the critique he's trying to make, right? Sure. He's sort of like pointing out the specific conditions that were operating in Spain at this time. He's um, painting quite a general historic view whereby uh, Spain hasn't really had 
comprehensive agrarian reform comparable to what's happening in other European states. So you still have all these sort of village communes. You still have these people living under like, I don't know, maybe like semi-feudal conditions mm. or whatever. So the the form of the rebellion, the form of the civil war or the revolution is hinges kind of around collectivization because there are all these sort of like collective forms that mm. exist. And so it makes perfect sense that like, it will be that collective, the communal village or what have you, that will become the the organizational form of the sort of like the transition or the the process of collectivizing of instituting socialism kind of thing. But he says that like that sort of backward form, that sort of like underdeveloped aspect to Spanish society or certain aspects of Spanish society results in this situation whereby you have all these sort of like independent communes and okay everybody's sort of like collectivized everything inside the commune but like the way people are still relating toward one another and more importantly the way all of these communes are relating to one another are still capitalist in their sure. mode um, which is all legitimate but then he sort of like lumps together all the sort of like labor tokens or whatever mm. um into that and obviously like you and I have like an interest in that, having read the Fundamental Principles mm. book, a book written by council communists, we have some attachment to that idea of a transition to socialism that moves us away from money and toward mm. labor time accounting or whatever. I don't know whether he might just make a general criticism of like, even that kind of system as being one which is minded toward a transition. Sure. In a way that the introduction to this book criticizes transitions, and he might just broadly sweep it away as being like, okay, no, we, that's not communizing because it's a, it's a managed transition from one mode yeah. of production to another, and it's liable to slip back into capitalism kind of thing. Mm. But yeah, I agree with the, the point that you make, which yeah. is like, I don't know. What? Yeah. <laughs> but it's the thing I like. Yeah. <laughs> you can go after everybody else, but not the thing I like. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. The idea of like, on one end, of a completely arbitrary spectrum, spectrum, you have the, like, social democracy, everybody work together and we'll take the power and then we'll institute it from above. Then the other end, you kind of have this. I'm just going to exclude the anarchists for now. I do kind of feel like I, not a happy medium for the sake of having a happy medium, but, like, something that takes the best of both worlds is kind of what we came across in the GIC book. So I don't know. I think it is, yeah, it's an idea worth pursuing and not just writing off because, like, of course, so much is going to need to change, but you need to have the laws of the way things move. I don't want to say economy, but like the laws of an economy if you're going to try and figure this whole thing out. And like, I'm comfortable having a transition phase if the transition is built into the content. And yeah, and I kind of feel like it was in the GIC. Of course, there's a million other things that would need to be figured out. Asterix, asterix. But I like it. I do think that the content and form distinction is there in the GIC book. Yeah, and I think it is well thought out. And I think that, like, labor tokens, yeah, if you are just going to say leave everything the same, but, like, now this, I don't know. All I'm saying, commodity fetishism, big deal. So what are you going to do? Um, this is good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah good. I had fun with it. Yeah. Left com, left com stuff is always, like, it's always cool. It's always fun to read. Like, don't let the, like, don't let the memes scare you off. Just like you probably shouldn't let the memes scare you off of Lenin. Like, you know, because, you know, people like Lars Lee or whatever will come out there and say, like, here's why the memes of the Soviet Union or whatever, like, at least during Lenin's times weren't true. Here's why the memes of the Bolshevik Party weren't true. Uh, discover the man behind the meme with a lot of this leftcom stuff, too, because it's really worthwhile. And, like, I bought up Rosa Luxemburg before. Like, she kind of gets memed into oblivion. But, like, damn, when we were at the mass strike, I was really, like taken with it and of course you're never going to find anything you agree with 100 percent. so like take a risk communization it's pretty wild it's pretty neat content versus form much as like systems theory can kind of help shape your ideas about the world and i think where we found like that uh theoretical framework when we read designing freedom to be very helpful when thinking about all sorts of things content and form kind of is too so uh don't write it off simply because uh, Dove is a meme. <laughs> yeah, I definitely recommend everybody go and read this essay. You can you can find it online. It's on the EndNotes website kind of thing. You mm. don't have to go and buy the book. Even if it's just for like a, a, a an account of fascism mm. and how it came about to quash uh, the revolutionary movements of that, that time. It's an interesting and excellent historical yeah. account kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so definitely worth well reading for that. But also you can identify all of these trends of 
communization thought, I suppose, mm. which hopefully will play out further in uh, future readings from this yeah. book, I guess. Mm. Yeah, I feel like we might have to actually re turn is the end of that word we might have to return to the ideas of uh anti-work and stuff because i feel fuck we should have done the tang pink stuff this week and done read this last week because i feel like i have a little bit more i want to say now about anti-work and about that kind of stuff although I th yeah a lot of what i said in that video i feel like i still hold too it's very much a like negative project but what are you gonna do it's workers movement 2.0 it'll be interesting to see what happens if Going forward in history, we have something like a reemergence of the first workers' movement or whatever. Yeah, two workers' movements side by side. One that's just like the schmucks who don't want to work. Another one is the people who want to do the take power thing. Yeah, you, you now make me wonder whether how... Um, I'm going to have to look into this further in future, I guess. How actually negative the sort of like anti-work aspects of communization are. Mm. Or whether... Because it's like a... Because communization is sort of a revolutionary process that people will be involved in kind sure. of thing. Like it's a different kind of world. It's a different kind of human labor and social activity kind mm. of thing. But I don't know. What would that, yeah. what would that, what would the content of communization yeah. be? I don't know. Maybe, it's an ideal... maybe that's why it's so vague to me at the moment is because I, I don't really understand. And maybe nobody yeah. understands what necessarily that unfolding of that revolutionary process is intended to be or meant yeah. to be. Kind of I think it's an ideal that everyone, no matter your ideology on the like Marxist left, even like especially anarchists, right? Like it's an ideal that everybody aspires to this like anti-work thing, but <laughs> maybe the further left you go, the shorter the time period is between, you know, the revolution and getting to that point. So whereas here, it's just like, that's it. That's all we want. Um, yeah, I would have liked to hear him talk about anarchists a bit more because it's, yeah, hop, skip, and a jump. So what are you going to do? Yeah. Um, yeah, anyway, we'll eventually be finishing this, perhaps very soon. And I'm excited. It gets a bit complicated. So if you want the capital this is, P, this capital T. the real T. reason why we only yeah. read this essay this week. Yeah, exactly. We, there's some weeds that we're going to get into yeah. next time. So yeah. we didn't want to get too bogged down. Exactly. <laughs> and if you want the capital P, capital T, proper take on this, you might not find it here, but we'll do our darnest to sort it out. So with that, definitely go read EndNotes. And I think, yeah, we'll be returning to not just this journal, but probably other essays in the future. Um, just because it is, it's got my goat in a good yeah. way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's very good to have, a, have ourselves challenged kind of thing. Mm. So not fall too much into the kind of like Neokowski school, yeah. you know. Uh, and yeah. sort of question some of those assumptions and work out because obviously that political project failed, right? And mm. so these people are in the in the and and like Paul Matic and the Council of Communists and whoever are worked so hard to work out why that project failed. Mm. Why was the historic workers' movement a failure? And any attempt to bring it back about, bring it about again, will necessitate um, a very string, very sort of involved engagement with uh, that history. Yeah, asking ourselves why it failed the first time. Yeah, absolutely. Really quickly, too, I thought it was interesting. Yesterday you described kind of like the Neokowski stuff is very, very, not positive, uh, not pessimistic, optimistic. Mm. And I, yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it because it's like, yeah, okay, this stuff's, you know, the left commie stuff is also optimistic, but it's also like, man, the way things are going, it's not looking great for like a lot of different things to say nothing of like the impending apocalypse of climate change, but like, yeah, it's nice to have a political project that's just like, we can do it. Here's all we got to do. We just got to organize our way out of it. And it's mm. like, maybe that's where the main draw of that neocout kind of stuff is. And it's completely understandable. I'm not going to hassle anybody for wanting to be a part of it because it's like, yeah, that would be cool if it worked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who's yeah. to say it can? I don't know. I'm not going to be a prick. In the, in the end notes introduction to this, someone who gets a mention is um, a guy called Jack Kamat. Mm, yeah. who I think went on to be some kind of primitivist after engaging with <laughs> oh, is this that why kind the of pun? idea. So you don't have to follow him into the woods? Or yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, Quite literally, like, he was okay. just like... So there is a degree to which you could read this and just be like, it's been yeah. a failure. Communization <laughs> was just... It's, it's like going into the woods and growing vegetables, I guess. Yeah. Which, like, hey, we're, we're halfway to anyway. Yeah. <laughs> sounds pretty good to me. But what if I wanted to follow him into the woods, yeah. perhaps? <laughs> and notes failed to consider. Um, yeah, okay. I don't know. We need, don't need to drag it out any longer. Um, go check out our Discord. Go check out our YouTube channel. Go check out all of the socials. And we'll see you next time. We're going to get back into it. And uh, my name has been Jeff. 
my name is Mintan. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. Jack, it's been a pleasure. Yes. Thanks for joining me once again. <laughs> bye bye. The music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People Too by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more commie discussion. Till next time.